Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, I want to talk about uh, the inside, and as uh, Rib Shlomo would say, the inside of the inside. So everybody knows that there's an inside, and then there's an inside to the inside. And you see, everything in life is levels. And it's, um, you know, I, I remember many years ago, I, I asked uh, Reb Shlomo how many albums he had at. And he said, um, on, a, on, an, on a record level or on a tape level, right? So like everything was levels with him, you know, in terms of, in terms of just his, his own uh, uh, songs and, and recordings and everything like that. But in terms of the universe, you have to understand also that everything is levels. Um, and if God is infinite, that means that there's an infinite number of levels, right? If, um, if heaven is a subset of, of God, then heaven is also going to be able to have an infinite number of levels because it's going to be able to, um, it will never stop because God himself never stops. So, so we never have to really worry about hitting the end because we'll never hit the end because God himself is infinite. And so the idea is that we want to get ourselves to, to really the highest level that we can get at. And one of my all-time favorite teachings is uh, we know that when Abraham Avinu, when, when, when Abraham was tested with probably the greatest test that any individual has ever been tested with by the binding of Yitzchak, by the Akedah, and he was going to go through with it, um, right as he was about to, uh, you know, use the knife, he hears, he hears Hashem say, Avraham, Avraham. And there was a double repetition of the name. And I heard a, a very amazing commentary on that, which explained that, that why, why Avraham, Avraham? Because at that moment, he reached his full potential that the Avraham below matched the Avraham above. So this was like an amazing thing. We know, but you never have to worry about, so you say, well, once I reach my highest level, then probably I die, I leave the world, right? So you see something very interesting by Yaakov Avinu, because when Yaakov wrestles with the angel and he defeats the angel, at that moment, Hashem gives him another name, gives him the name Yisrael. And everybody knows that your name is your mission. So, so when he sort of like maxed out, so to speak, he got another mission. He got another name. So, so you see that, and you know, I don't think anyone of us has to really worry about this, but, but just conceptually, there, there's no end because Hashem himself is infinite. We know that... Um, that, uh, 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 that, that, that a neshama, after it leaves this world, a soul after it leaves this world, um, it rises to the level that it earned in this world. Um, and yet, um, it has the ability through um, its descendants, the, the children and the students and, and anyone who, who does mitzvot in the, or, or, or good deeds, acts of, of love in the name of the deceased, that that neshama can still rise, even after it's, so to speak, maxed out on its own cred. Nonetheless, it has the ability to continue to rise through, through the people down here who are, who are connected to the soul. So we say, may the neshama have an aliyah. 
which means that the soul itself is still rising and continues to rise. And so there's really no ceiling. There's no ceiling. So yet we have levels. We have the idea of, of the inside, and then we have the inside of the inside. So I know in terms of relationships, I think all of us have, have, have experienced that moment where you become closer to a person, where there's some sort of breakthrough in terms of the relationship, where you, you experience the inside or maybe even the inside of the inside. And, and this is true very much with us in Hashem, that it just, the relationship ideally is just going deeper and deeper and deeper. So with this in mind, we have something very interesting in this week's Parsha in Baloscha. And, um, you know, Baloscha in terms of just the number of events that take place is maybe arguably the richest Parsha in the entire Torah because there's so many separate events that each are totally epic and one happens right after the other. So, so, you know, it starts with the menorah, which is just, you know, amazing, just the, the amount of light that's coming into the world. Um, and uh, it also has Pesach Sheni, which is this amazing, this amazing idea in Torah, which is that... Uh, that, that we have a constant second chance at everything. You know, this is, and that it's not just an idea, that it's been, it's been institutionalized, this concept that if you miss something, that, that you still have the ability to reapproach it because the world itself is constantly being renewed and reinvented. And so every moment is literally a new beginning. Now I want to discuss something getting back to this idea of the inside of the inside. Um, but, but before I do, I, I just want to preface it in, in, in the following way, and we'll, we'll return to this thought, because I think that this is maybe one of the most important things I'm trying to communicate in terms of how we see the world. Um, and, and, and if this comes across as an abstract idea, then I apologize because it's the opposite of my intent. I'm trying to make this idea that I'm about to share with you the realist idea, not, not an idea itself, but for us to understand that it's, it's reality. You see, so many of us, we're, we're so used to defining reality based on our own thoughts as opposed to understanding that we exist in a very clear and coherent structure and that there's a reality to the world itself and that the Torah gives us a very definitive description of the reality that we exist in. And to the extent that we can really understand that in a very concrete way, it will help us in our lives. So, so, um, so let me, let me go forward and, and just try to be more clear in what I'm saying now. So, you see, if you, were to, um, if you were to look at the encampment of the Jews in the desert, they, there were three tribes in the front, led by Yehuda, right, who's the king, that he, leads the, he leads the Jewish people. There are three tribes in the front, there are three tribes in the back, 
There are three tribes on the left, and there are three tribes on the right, totaling 12 tribes. So what's on the inside? What was in the inside of the movement through the desert? And remember, the, the way, um, the, way the, 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 the Jews were arranged in the desert reflected the, the encampment of the angels in heaven. So there was this parallel between the Jews below and the angels above. All right? Now, what was in the middle, with that in mind, what was in the middle of the Jews' encampment in the desert? The answer is the Mishkan, the tabernacle, right? And the Kahanim and the Levium were, were encamped around it, okay? So this was the porthole between heaven and earth. That's what the Mishkan was, and that was right in the center of the Jewish people. So, so now, what was... The, so that's the inside, right? That's the inside. So now the question is, What's the inside of the inside? Right? If that's the inside, what's the inside of the inside? So the answer is, the inside of the inside is the Holy of Holies. Right? That's, that's was the inside of the Mishkan. Now, everybody knows that in the exile that we live in right now, every shul, every, every synagogue is, is called a Mikdash Miyat. That means a small, like a, like, so to speak, a, a, a small mikdash, a small um, sanctuary, right? Paralleling the prototype of it, which was the Mishkan in the desert, and later on the, the Besa Mikdash, the holy temple in Yerushalayim. And so in, in every shul then, you've got, if you're inside the shul, that would be the inside, right? So what would be in a shul, the inside of the inside? What would that be? That would be where we keep the Torah. Right? That, 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 that would be where we keep the Torah. So that makes sense. So now we're getting closer. Now, you want to hear something so interesting. What Pusuk do we say? What verse from the Torah do we say when we open up the Ark? In other words, when we're about to, when we're about to make that transition, we talk about a relationship, right? When we're about to make that relationship uh, shift from close to closer, or from close to intimate, whatever it is to go from the inside to the inside of the inside, when we open up the ark and we go into that next realm, that next dimension, that next space, what do we say? And we say the following pasuk: Vayihi ben Zoa Aron v'yomer Moshe, Kuma Hashem v'yafutzum oivecha v'yanusu misenecha mipanecha. Right? So that's, that's, let me translate that for you. So the way the art scroll translated is, when the ark would travel, Moshe would say, Arise, Hashem, and let your foes be scattered, that those who hate you flee from you. All right. So this, obviously, if, if from the entire Torah, right, and all of Tanakh, Tanakh, right, all of the books of the Torah, if they're ver- picking one verse to say, when you open up the ark, right? Very great people spend like put a lot of thought into this to pick one verse to say. Obviously, that verse must be a very important verse. So, so let's find out more about this verse, right? Let's we, we, we have to find more about this. Okay. So now, in this week's parsha, 
you find something which is un unprecedented in, in the entire Torah, which is you have a, a cordoned off area, and it's in the Torah scroll itself, and it's cordoned off. It's 80 somewhat, some odd letters long, and it's cordoned off by two large upside down letter nuns. And in there is one passage. And this passage is so important, and this cordoned off area is so important that the rabbis say that this is an entire separate book of the Torah. So now you might say, well, wait a second. How does this work? Because I thought there were five books of the Torah. I thought there was Breshi, Shmos, right? Vayikra, Bamidbar, Devarim. That's five. So now you're telling me that this is a separate book of the Torah? What's going on? And what's so interesting is, is that the Talmud has another opinion, that there aren't just five books of the Torah that because this is a separate book of the Torah, there's actually seven books of the Torah. That because this appears in, in the Sefer that we call Bamidbar, or in English, Numbers, that actually the book of Numbers counts for as three books of the Torah. The area before this cordoned off area, the cordoned off area itself, and the area after the cordoned off area. So that makes Bamidbar Numbers three books of the Torah, and the other four books that we mentioned, that's seven books of the Torah. So now, what passage is inside this cordoned off area? One passage, which has the status of an entire separate book of the Torah. So, here it is. Here's what it says. Vayahi ben Soa Aaron v'yomer Moshe, kuma Hashem v'yafutsoi vecha v'yanusu misanecha mipanecha. That's what it says. It's an incredible thing. So in other words, in other words, when we open up, when we transition from going from the inside to the inside of the inside, and we open up that ark, and we're entering into a whole, a whole new realm, a whole new dimension to our relationship, we're saying this verse, and this verse has the status of an entire separate book of the Torah. Now, now let's go a little bit deeper. We have to ask ourselves, well, wait a second, this is so strange. I mean, why like insert these upside down nuns? And by the way, there's a ton of Torah on the nuns, if you're interested, and there's whole, you know, it's, it's one of those things that every commentator goes to town on. And so there's a, a, a huge amount of Hasidus and, and all the rest and commentary on, on, on this section. It's a very, very rich section in the Torah if you're interested in knowing more. But let's just talk about the very basics right now. Why did Hashem do this? Why did Hashem insert this book of the Torah, this separate book of the Torah, in this part of the Parsha at all. Why, why do something so unusual and unprecedented that doesn't occur anyplace else in the entire Torah? And the answer is really interesting. The answer is because this is, bless you, that, that, that right here in this section of the Torah, the Jewish people make three mistakes in a row. 
or three ava- they do three averas in a row, they three rebellions in a row. They're they're complaining, and we know that we have a concept in Torah of something called a chazaka, that if you do something three times in a row, right, that that basically gets into your bones. In other words, if you want to sort of like quantify the moment when some act becomes habitualized, that's, that's when it happens, when you do something three times in a row. And not only that, but it even has the status of a vow in Torah. That in other words, let's say um, you do a, a practice, like let's say it's a proper practice. By the way, I'll tell you just an interesting piece of Torah. If I, let's say I'm becoming you know, more observant and I, I want to get closer to God, and I say, you know something, I solemnly swear, whatever the language of taking a vow on is, to start putting on tefillin. Now, do you want to hear something interesting? That vow has no um, status whatsoever and is not considered a vow at all. Do you know why? Because I'm already commanded to put on tefillin. So this idea that I'm vowing to put on tefillin, it's very nice, but you got to do it anyway, whether you're making a vow or not making a vow. So, so vows have a, a certain sanctity to them, but not on something that where you can resolve to. You can say, I want to improve myself and do it, but not on the status of a vow. It's a very technical thing. There are whole sorts of technical things. The whole idea of um, kol nidre, that we say, that special part of the service, that we say on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, before like the day really starts, to, to cancel out vows is largely addressing what I'm telling you right now. These sort of accidental vows that we stumble into, which is that when we do something on a repeated basis, but we didn't have what's called kavana, we didn't have the intention to start taking this on, right? So that's why if you begin a new practice, and it's something that you don't necessarily, it's just like you're, you're in a good mood. You're feeling sort of spiritual. You want to do it. And then, you know, next day you're sort of feeling spiritual again and you do it again. But you you aren't necessarily committing to do this on an ongoing basis. You have to say, in your mind, you have to say or speak the words, Bli chazaka, without a vow. I'm not making a chazaka. And then you're freed from this stumbling into and making an unintentional vow through your actions. Okay. So now let's return back to the Chumash right now. So the Jews we do three not-so-great things in a row. And so, on a deep spiritual level, we've sort of created a problem for ourselves, right? We've sort of habitualized the act of complaining against God and rebelling against God. So Hashem Himself, because remember, the Torah is so holy. The Torah is the DNA of existence. The Torah is the DNA of our own souls. Right? How can Hashem Himself allow there to be this chazaka of complaint, this chazaka of rebellion? So, what does God do in His infinite wisdom? He inserts a whole section in the middle of these three in order to break it up. So that these three things don't come in a row. And to free us from sort of being frozen or locked into this state of wrongdoing. An amazing, an amazing thing. An amazing thing. Okay, so now let's bring it back to our own lives, okay? And with what phrase does God sort of like 
break this pattern, right? With this phrase, when the ark would travel, Moshe would say, Arise, Hashem, and let your foes be scattered. Those who flee, who, who hate you fl- should flee from you. In other words, wrongdoing. Wrongdoing itself should flee from God. That's the passage that we're saying. Those who hate you, so to speak, the Yetzahara, that, that which comes against us, that which comes against you, although the Yetzahara works for God, but that's another discussion. But nonetheless, because there's only one power, but nonetheless, that which opposes our progress, let it flee and go away so that we are not locked into this pattern of wrongdoing. And so this passage is coming to save us, right? Now, let's, let's take this to the next level. What did we say? We said that there's the inside and then there's the inside of the inside. Right? So, so every time we go in a shul and we're about to read the Torah, we open up the ark and we say this phrase. So you know what that means? That means that every single person, see, You see, humility is a very, very delicate construct. And the Yetzirah is, is remember, it's the, 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 the spiritual force that opposes us, the, 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 the negative inclination. It, it's constantly renewing itself every day. It never runs out of strategies. It's an angel, so it knows us better than we know ourselves. A person has to be knowledgeable of its tricks and, and, and how it works, right? Like, for instance, I'll just give you just a couple of ideas. What, what, what the rabbis teach, and very, very wisely, is that the way it comes to us is you're, you're, it's like they compare it to someone's walking down the street, and across the street, someone waves to them. And then if you go and you engage them in a conversation, the next thing you know... So first a thought comes into our head, and it kind of waves to us. And then we have a moment where we can walk away or we have a moment where we can engage. And this is true for all of us. So a lot of us think that when that first thought comes into our mind, that's already us. It's not necessarily. More times than not, it's the Sahara. And at that moment, you have the ability to turn away. And it's effective. You say, because as Rebbe Nachman points out, a person can think two different thoughts simultaneously. So if you decide at that moment, I don't want that, I want to think of something else, okay, then it can, you know, sometimes it'll be more successful, sometimes it'll be less successful. But if you resolve yourself not to think about that and to think about another thought, then you can steer your mind in a different direction. Okay. So, 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 so the idea is, sometimes we think of ourselves as, as having humility, right? And, and, and here's how the humility, uh, yeah. Here's, here's, how the, here's how the humility um, enters into our life. It, it goes in the following way. Someone um, 
asks, uh, asks us to do something, say, anything. A friend asks us to do something. A family member asks us to, uh, asks us to do something. A community member asks us to do something. And we say, you know, who am I to take on such a responsibility? This is really something for someone much greater than I am, right? So all of a sudden, the person becomes very, very humble when asked to do something for someone else, right? And then if that same person is slightly insulted, they're like, do they know who I am? <laughs> right? Like, what a chutzpah that they should treat me this way or they should speak to me this way. <laughs> so this is what really we call the worst, of, the worst of both worlds. When someone is asking you to do something helpful, all of a sudden I'm so small, I'm nothing. And yet, if the slightest insult comes the person's way, it's sort of like, do you, you know, all of a sudden they're like the most important person in the entire world. Right? So, so, so sometimes, sometimes humility comes to someone in the cloak of humility, but it's not real humility. And, 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 and what it tells us is that, you know something? The truth is, I'm a very low person, and, um, and I'm just, I'm not deserving. I'm not on the level. You know, I, I was in the room when, when what I'm about to tell you happened, so I'm a, an eyewitness to this, and I just, it really stayed with me. Someone came to a service, this was in New York City uh, a number of years ago, and um, he was someone who was wanting to get closer to Torah and to mitzvahs, and he comes to shul on a Sunday morning, you know? I mean, it was like a small little, little gathering in a kind of a side room in a building. I don't know how many people were there. Maybe 15 people were there, something like this. So he walks in, and he's not putting on tefillin. Sunday, he's not putting on tefillin. So someone comes up to him and says, after the service, says, hey, would you like to put on tefillin? I mean, absolutely. I mean, look, he's showing up. No one dragged him there. He came on his own. You know, he's coming under his own volition. Obviously, he wants to be there. Otherwise, he wouldn't be there. So they say to him, you want to put on tefillin? He goes, no, I don't want to put on tefillin. And they, they, they said, well, why? You know? He says, because these hands that ate lobster last night, how can they go and put on tefillin? Right? So, okay, so on some level that's beautiful. On another level, it's just completely wrong. It's completely wrong. It's completely wrong. So what does you having eaten lobster last night with that set of hands have anything to do with the fact that you have an obligation to put on to fill in today? What does one thing have to do with the other? There's no connection whatsoever. But a person, and again, it, it's, there's, um, this is what I'm trying to tell you about the Yetzirah. The Yetzirah can come and, and, and sort of like in, in, in the most emotionally resonant, almost lyrical way express you know one's lowness and humil and, and 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 humbleness in such a way that actually is completely inaccurate and one can buy into it thinking that somehow this is an act of um, you know submission in, in some holy way whereas it's just a lie that they're buying into so so let me put it to you another way Every morning, one of the first things that we say in the, in the prayers is, 
my God, the soul you placed in me is pure. This is one of the first things that we say in the morning. Elokai neshama shenatate bi toharahi. My God, the soul you placed within me is pure. Right? You created it, you fashioned it, you breathed it into me. This is, this is the reality. This is the reality. All of us have a pure soul within us. This is the reality. And before, maybe 15 minutes ago, when I was giving you a long introduction, that I was trying to tell you that we exist within a reality, that it's not just whatever we think reality is, that there's a structure that we exist in, a very firm core aspect of that structure, which is the reality of the world which we exist in, is the fact that we have a pure soul. That's not up for grabs. That's not contingent on whether I ate lobster last night or not. That remains true no matter what. You have a pure soul within you. Now, if we don't guard it and we're not careful with it, we can muck it up to a certain extent, but not completely. Not to the extent that these words that we say every single day don't still remain true every single day. They remain true every single day. My God, the soul that you placed within me is pure. Now, let's start to put all these thoughts together. We said that God is infinite. So there's infinite levels to everything, to all aspects of life. There's infinite levels, right? And you have the inside and you have the inside of the inside. When we're in a shul, that's the inside, right? The encampment of the Jewish people. At the center of the encampment of the Jewish people, which we said paralleled how the angels encamp in the celestial spheres, at the inside of the camp was the shul, was the mishkan, right? The shul that we have today is called a mikdash mi'at, a miniature version of that. The inside of the Mishkan, at the heart of the Jewish encampment, the inside of the inside was the Holy of Holies. In our Mikdash Mi'at, the inside of the inside is the ark where we keep the Torah. When we open up the ark, we go from the inside to the inside of the inside. And the passage that we say, the passage that we say, is that passage, that same passage, Vayahib bin Soa, that same passage that Hashem put to break up this chazaka of wrongdoing in order to tell us, in order to tell us that God forbid you should think that you're low, that God forbid you should think that your soul is impure, that God forbid that you should think that that wrongdoing has so entered your bones and corroded your soul that you're not invited to be in the inside of the inside, that you're not eligible to this extreme closeness with Hashem at all times. And so every time we open up the ark, we are living that passage in the Torah where the chazak of wrongdoing, that habitualization of wrongdoing, is being broken up and thrown out the window. And we're being liberated and reminded of who we are and what we have inside of us. And that that closeness, that key to that relationship never goes away. 
It never goes away. You know, just interestingly, as, a, as an aside, just as, an, as a P.S. to this, there's a minute, there's a holy custom among the Jewish people that when a woman is pregnant, that her husband comes and he opens up the ark. He's the one who opens up the ark. And that's a blessing for a, an easy childbirth. Right? And if you think about it, it's sort of like, here you see the opening of the ark is going from the inside to the inside of the inside, right? And here you see that the Torah scroll is symbolic of the baby that's being delivered because each one of us is a Torah scroll. All right, so now let's go further. Let's go further. Because I want to talk about the inside of the inside in a different way now, to approach it in another way. And um, let me just introduce it by telling you a story. It's a famous story. I'm sure many of you have heard it. It's a classic, classic story. So just in terms of a little bit of uh, Jewish history, very quickly, we know that um, parallel to the rise of the Hasidic movement um, in Eastern Europe, um, there was in the, in the Lithuanian world, right, there was another movement called the Musser movement. And the Musser movement was um, similar to the Hasidic movement in the sense that it also meant to revolutionize and to wake up Jews. It used a different style of learning, but the idea was to really kind of like shake people and say, you know something, you're learning about ethics all day. Okay, now be ethical, you know, to like to, to create a, a fire within them. So in, 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 in this way, it was similar to the Hasidic movement, but because it was dealing with um, people who maybe had a different... Um, sort of like intellectual makeup, it was trying to address kind of where they were at spiritually and emotionally. And the, the leader of this movement was Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, one of our, our, our great lights, our, one of our great tzaddikim. So um, just like the Hasidic movement was opposed, the Musr movement was also opposed. And, and while Rabbi Yisrael Salanter was going from community to community, trying to... Um, you know, set people's hearts on fire and to wake them up. Um, he would, he would, he would give various lectures in different places. Now, there's something called Mari Makomos, which are a listing of sources. So, if you're going to give a a a a, a shear, if you're going to give a, a learned speech lesson to um, to scholars, so the the practice is to first publish a list of all of the sources that you're going going to go through and you post those sources, and then the people can prepare the sources, and then when you give your lecture, then they can really zero in, and they're really following it, and, and, and they're prepared to ask questions and to really understand what you're saying. So Rabbi Israel Salanter shows up in this particular place, and he sees that the list of sources that he had put up had been taken down, and that someone replaced it with a, another list of sources, and which had each section had nothing to do whatsoever with the previous section. So they were trying to undermine him and embarrass him. And he got there and he looked at the list 
and he thought for a few moments, and then he gave a brilliant lecture on, on the brand new list of sources, making a completely coherent presentation. Now, the reason why he was able to do that is because the Torah is all one. God is one, the Torah is one. It's all one. And if you have the proper mind and, and, and you have the proper level of uh, Kedusha, of, of, of Das Torah that comes with really purifying yourself, then you can see the oneness in all the sources. And, and it's, not, um, it's not really problematic. I mean, you know, it depends. You have to be on a big level, but, but that's the idea. So as an aside, but it's a very amazing aside for me anyway, I heard Rabbi Green say, so that moment in the story where Rabbi Israel Salanter looked at the sources and was thinking for a few moments, what was going on there? And he said, don't think for a moment that he was trying to figure out the connection between the various things. That he knew instantly. That he knew instantly. So what was he thinking about? Whether he had permission to reveal his greatness. Because what he was about to do was blow everyone out of the water with zero preparation. And so what he was debating was, do I have permission for them to really understand who I am? Right? So he decided that, that, the, that the sake of the Musr movement was important enough that he was willing to sacrifice his anonymity or that level of his anonymity. Um, but the reason why I'm telling you this story is just for us to see that all areas of the Torah are connected. And that if you um, go into even very specific halachas, laws that sound extremely esoteric and detailed, that there are applications to our lives in a very practical way. Mm-hmm. So what I'm going to do now is just take you on a little tour of some laws of kashrus, keeping kosher, in a very highly specific area. And then we'll take a look and see how it applies to our souls and our, and our own lives, okay? So this is in a section of halacha from the Shulchan Aruch called Taruvos, and which means um, it deals with when foods get mixed together, where permissible foods get mixed together with foods that are, are, are not permissible, okay? So let's just take a tour through a series of cases very quickly, okay? So we have something called Batol Bashishim. So this is a, you know, like a hallmark, a hallmark uh, for keeping a, a kosher home, a kosher kitchen. And that idea is that, um, that if you have 60 times the amount of something which is permissible against something which is impermissible, then, then the impermissible thing sort of becomes dissipated within the kosher thing and then it's kosher, and you don't have to throw the whole thing out. So what's a classic example of this? Imagine you've got a pot of chicken soup, and we all know that we can't mix milk with meat. And imagine in this pot of chicken soup, one drop of milk comes into the chicken soup. So since you have 60 times the chicken soup than the drop of milk, and the, the milk sort of dissolves within the, the soup, so you can have the entire chicken soup, and there's no problem because you have 60 against one. Okay? So, so I'll tell you just um, where do we get this concept of 60 to 1 anyway? 
Where does that come from? So maybe it might be interesting just to explore that before we go on to the next case. So there is um, uh, an offering. We would bring offerings uh, in the Holy Temple, and there were certain sections of the offering of the animal that only the Kohen could eat, right? The, the rest of the people couldn't eat it. This was special just for the Kohen. Now, what would happen is, if you cook the whole animal and you're putting it on this on the Mizbeach, which is, you know, with flames and everything like that, what would happen is part of that section, which is just revered, which is just reserved for the Kohen to eat, that, so to speak, the, the taste from that section would enter into the next section of meat. And we have something in Halacha and Kashrus called Tam Ke'ikr, which means that the taste of something is, is equivalent to the thing itself. So if you have something that has... Um, uh, like uh, a ham taste to it because ham got onto it, that would be equivalent to eating ham. Even though you're not eating ham at that moment, you might be eating something kosher. But if it got a ham taste on it, we say tam ke'ikr, that the taste of something is like the thing itself. So they had a problem. They said, well, wait a second. This section is just for the kohen, and the taste of this section is actually sort of like since it's being cooked together, is getting into the section of meat, which is for the non-Kohen. And we say, Tam Ke'ikr. So maybe if I'm eating this other piece, maybe it's like, since it's got the taste of that other section, which is just reserved for the Kohen, maybe it's like I'm eating something that I'm not allowed to eat. (coughs) Right? So they say, oh, no. If you have 60 in the new section against the other part, then the taste of that thing dissipates and it's not there. So you don't have to worry. So that's where Bato Bashishim, the 60 to 1 ratio, is figured out. Okay, so, so now let's return to our first case and then we're going to do a couple of quick supplementary cases. So if you have a drop of milk that enters into a pot of chicken soup, if you have 60 of the um, chicken soup against the milk, the whole pot is okay. Next case, let's say a piece of bacon, a piece of like ham, falls into that chicken soup. Now what do you do, right? Well, if you have 60 of the soup, in this instance, against the piece of ham, right? Then everything is good. It's still good, but you have to remove the ham, okay? You can't have something that's called makira, which means recognizable. Right? If you have something that's impermissible and recognizable, that has to be removed. Right? But since you had 60 against the size of the impurity, then the whole soup is still kosher and good. Okay. Now let's do another case. Let's say I have a pot of kosher chili. Right? It's all ground beef. And now let's say I have a teaspoon of non-kosher meat, also ground beef, and it gets stirred in the pot of chili. Okay, so now, in this instance, I have 60 of the kosher chili against the non-kosher meat, but it's not makiro, it's not recognizable, because it's all mixed in, and that's ground beef, and this is ground beef, and it's all mixed in. What's the status of the pot of chili? As long as I have 60 of the kosher against the non-kosher, the whole pot is permissible. Wow. Okay? What is six? I don't understand the uh, significance of 60 against once. Like right. six, 60 scoops, or yeah, how do you yeah. define that? Yeah, so in volume, in volume. In volume. 
In what, in, in, what volume. in volume, in what sense? Is it in a spoon? Is it in a, like a... Right. How do you... What's that? So you, you have to... You, you would have to estimate, basically. You would have to estimate. But if you, if you have... Um, if you have 60 against it, then you're, then you're okay. So that's, that's the measure. That's the measure. Okay. So how do you figure it out? This is a good question, and this is a, that's a whole separate area, believe it or not. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that's not, you're, you're, asking, you're asking a good question, and it's a big question. How do you go about estimating it? So for instance, I'll, I'll give you um, one example. It wouldn't apply in this instance, but one example is um, the rabbis explain that you do something uh, called uh, displacement. Okay, so this would be like, you know, there's a famous story about um, Archimedes. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it might be interesting to hear the story itself. This is, you know, this is the history of the term Eureka. You ever hear people say Eureka when they figure out something? Okay, so I'm going to tell you the story how Eureka came to be, and it relates to your question, okay? You. So the king of this uh, place in Greece had a, uh, had a problem. He had commissioned from a craftsman a gold cup. And he knew that this craftsman was a cheat and had mixed into the gold silver, okay, which was cheaper, a cheaper substance. But he couldn't figure out how much silver was in the cup of gold, right? And so he challenged the wise people of his city to figure out a way whether he had actually been cheated or not and whether there was any silver in there or how much silver there was in there. Okay, so Archimedes was a great genius, right? So he went and he went and he was sitting in the bath. And what he noticed was that when he went into the bath, that the, the size of his body, the volume of his body when he went into the bath, displaced the amount of water which was equal to the volume of his body. And he yelled out, Eureka, because he had figured out the problem. What he was going to do is take a cup that was purely made out of gold, and then he was going to figure out how much silver weighed as well, and he would do an experiment. He would put in a gold cup that was pure gold cup, see how much water that displaced. Then he would take the king's cup, and he would see how much water that would displace, which would be more since silver is heavier, right? And then from that, he was able to derive how much silver was in the cup, okay? <laughs> and so he solved the problem. And he, when, he, when he did it, he, he was so excited, he got out of the bath and ran nude through the city. Oh that's, the, that's the end of that story. Because <laughs> you know, he, he was just sort of so taken with his insight. So the rabbis say that if you want to know how much of the impurity is there, you put in that size in a full pot, and the amount it displaces, that would be the amount of the thing itself. And now you're able to measure it, and now you need 60 times that. So this is a way of actually quantifying it and measuring it. Okay, so now let's do the next case. So again, let's run through the cases very quickly. A drop of milk in a pot of chicken soup, if you've got 60 against it, it's good. If you have a piece of ham that falls in, as long as you have 60 against the ham, that's good, but you must remove the ham because it's makiro, it's recognizable, okay? If you have chili, non-kosher chili, and you stir it in with the kosher chili, as, as long as you have 60 against the non-kosher chili, and it's not recognizable because it looks exactly the same, you're good, you can eat the whole pot. Now we have the case that I'm building to. Now this is the case, okay? 
The case is, what if you have something called chalif, which is non-kosher fat, right? It's forbidden to eat this fat. And the fat enters into your pot of food. And fat melts when it's under fire and it cooks. And now the fat is mixed in with your food and it's unrecognizable, right? Because it's melted. So, so in this instance, again, you have 60 of the kosher food against the amount of fat. The question is, what is the status of this food? Can you eat this food or you cannot eat this food? And you would say, well, this sounds just like the case with the chili. It's not recognizable. It's not makira, right? You've got 60 of the kosher against the unkosher. So it should be good to eat the whole pot. So the answer is, in this instance, you can't eat it. Now, the, why would it be different in this instance? Now, listen to this. This is where it gets interesting. Because the rabbis explain, the Ramah brings in the Shulchan Aruch, that we have something called an Eitzah. An Eitzah means advice, counsel, good counsel. Which is, if you pour cold water into that pot, what's going to happen is the fat is going to congeal and rise to the top. And then it will have the status of being makiro, recognizable, and then you have to be, then you have to remove it. And once you remove it, then you can eat what's in the pot. So now let's think about this because this is very deep now. This is very deep. Because they go further, they say, yes, while this thing initially has the status of being hidden and unrecognizable, since there's a way to root it out, it actually technically has the status of that which is revealed. Even at the moment that it's hidden, it has the status of that which is revealed because there's a way to smoke it out, so to speak. There's a way of uncovering it. All right? And now we're starting to get into how the specific halacha which sounds very sort of like, okay, maybe I need to know this if I'm in the kitchen, what this has to do with us on a day-to-day level and our own lives. You see, let me say it very simply first and then we'll go deeper. See, it says in the Gomorrah that wherever you see reference to water, it's only talking about one thing, which is Torah. You see, we... We go through life and we have a pure soul, but we have things through our own actions and through the long exile and through just our own weaknesses. We have things that get mixed in. And these things that get mixed in are not always apparent. And some people's approach to this is, hey, that's just me. Just take me for me, because this is just me. Right? Um, and they say further, you know something? There's certainly 60 of me that's good versus this flaw. <laughs> so really, what's the big deal? You know, I'm mostly a good guy, I'm mostly a nice guy, so you put up with this. That's the cost of doing business with me. You want to be my friend? That's, that's what it is. Right? But, but we see, we see 
that there's a way to remove it. That, that if a person actually wants to be a little bit more serious, a little bit more refined, person who understands what this world is for and what they're doing in the world and that they have to correct themselves, we understand that there's advice for this situation when something is mixed in and they themselves don't even know where it is, which is you pour water in. If a person pours Torah into themselves, if a person learns Torah, all of a sudden the imperfections become recognizable and they rise to the top. And they're able to see them. And now they have the status of being revealed. You see, let me tell you something. The Yetzirah, our imperfections, heat clarity. It, it heats clarity. And it tries to disguise itself in vagueness. Like, well, this is uh, whatever it is. I don't know. Just trying to, whatever it is. I don't know. It doesn't want to know what the actual truth is. Because if it can remain disguised, then it can remain undetected and it can continue to exist. I'm reminded, I was just listening to um, General Dempsey, who's the former head of, you know, you know the, our army, I guess. He has a more technical term than that, but he just stepped down. But I was listening to a... Um, an interview with him, and he's fighting in the Middle East for years and years. You know, he's finishing up his career. He's in charge, you know, of the American army. He said, you know, they were to ask him about the war against ISIS. He said, well, you know, up until recently, ISIS, when they would go into battle, they'd have these giant black flags that they'd carry into the, with them into battle, and it was good for us. They were very easy to bomb. You know, there they are with these giant black flags, just bomb them. He goes, now they've gotten a little bit smarter and they're hard to detect because they've mixed in with the crowd. Mm. You see, the Yetzirah is the same way. The Yetzirah wants to be disguised. It wants to be disguised. It doesn't want to be recognized because if it's recognized, then, it, then it's subject to being rooted out. Yes. You see? So, so what's the advice that Rabbi Israel Salanter Remember, we mentioned him earlier, the head of the Muslim movement. What advice does he give? He gives very fascinating advice. He says, if you're having trouble with a particular mitzvah, right, whatever it is, something that we're supposed to be doing, something we're not supposed to be doing, whatever it is, everyone has their issues, everyone. He says, he says, learn the halachas of that issue. Learn, learn the, the laws of that area, of that particular mitzvah. Now, this is a very brilliant insight, and it's very counterintuitive, because we, so to speak, we were joking yesterday, your inner vampire, right, is like, no, not light, no, no, don't show me that. Like, that's the last thing that I want to see. Yeah, no clarity, no light, you know? But the thing is, is that once you remove all the vagueness, and you actually just see something for what it is. Okay, it's, it may be that you still can't do it, but at least now you know what it is. And I, I, I promise you, I promise you, one of the first benefits that, that you receive is you say, you mean that's allowed? I thought that wasn't allowed. You mean that's allowed under these circumstances and then in there? I thought it was never allowed. So 
oddly, one of the things that first happens is you realize that it's actually more doable than you thought it was. You know, because you're getting rid of all the vague hearsay and misunderstandings and, 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 and lack of clarity around it. And then you still don't have to do it. But at least you can say, okay, this part I can do. Maybe that part I can do. Or maybe one day I'll even be able to do that part. But then you can take it by steps and now you have a plan. And now you're in the driver's seat as opposed to hiding and being in a state of fear regarding this particular area of your life. Right? Plus you get reward for even trying. God even counts it like you're starting to be able to keep the mitzvah just by learning about the mitzvah. Remember, one of the beautiful things, if a person can do it, it's, it's, it's a very great thing to do, is to read the what's called the korbonos, the offerings that we would make in the Holy Temple. It's in the Siddur. It's the sections in the Torah that, 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 that talk about the offerings that we, that we brought. And they say that even today, if you can't bring the offerings, the very, the very act of learning about them or reading those sections in the Torah is on some level we're able to keep them. Is it the exact same thing? It's not the exact same thing. But it is, it, it, but, but it's, it's very real. So even if you're not doing it, if you're just learning about it, there's an aspect of the mitzvah itself that you're able to keep just by learning about it. So you get some reward for keeping it, even if you're not keeping it yet, just by learning it. And then you get this idea, this, this level of clarity, and it becomes recognizable. And it leaves this realm of doubt. Now listen to this. i tell you a gematria that's a famous gematria that I'm sure many of you have heard, but now in this context, it's going to sound different. Suffake means doubt. Suffake is the same gematria as Amalek. Amalek is the enemy of the Jewish people. See, and it's on a physical level, but it's also on a spiritual level, right? Amalek is like the Yitzhahara. It's the same gematria numerical equivalent of the word doubt. Why? Because Amalek wants, like ISIS now, right? Mm -hmm. Amalek wants to remain in this shrouded place of doubt. It doesn't want to be recognizable. What makes doubt, doubt? Because you can't quite define it. You don't know, is it this, is it that? You don't know. And that's what the Yetzirah thrives on. Lack of clarity. Lack of clarity. It wants to be in this. Yes, maybe, no, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. And this way, it becomes impervious to attack. But with Torah, you pour the water on it, the cold water on it, it rises to the top, and then you can see it. This is what it hates. Because this is the first step toward liberating yourself. So again, this is, this is, you know, Hashem says, Hashem says, Ani Hashem Rofecha, I am Hashem your healer. And, and, and the Torah we know is, is a healing substance. And so, so again, let's just summarize very quickly and we'll wrap it up. We're talking about the inside of the inside. So the first thing that a person has to know is that they have a pure soul. And that Hashem constructed the Torah, which is the DNA of the world and the DNA of every single person, in such a way that we don't have three mistakes in a row. That it's broken up. And it's broken up with this passage that we say, 
when we enter into the inside of the inside, when we open up the Torah, and that's a reminder to ourselves that we're pure, that we're not subject to the chazak of mistake, that, that our soul is pure, and that we have this relationship with the divine. And then another aspect of the inside of the inside is knowing how to sort of like approach your own Yetzirah, your own negativity, and that you want to shine a light, and that there's a way to make all this sort of confusion more clear, and that's through Torah. Then it rises to the top and we can address it in a, in a beautiful way. And so Hashem should just bless us then we should, that we should know how precious we are to Him. The, the question isn't that He should love us more. He, he loves us the most. But if we want to get to the next level, the ball is in our court to first and foremost understand truly and in the realest way just how much He actually loves us and what this world is for. And once we know that, then everything is going to advance to the next level.